You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we're excited to have Lisa Wallace, the clinical director of the Tadpole Research Project at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. With over 20 years of experience, Lisa has been providing intensive behavioral intervention for toddlers with autism and conducting training sessions for educators and speech language pathologists. Her expertise in fostering autonomy and effective communication in children with autism will guide our discussion on teaching the kids the power of no. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation because this is one where I think my training from 25 years ago probably neglected this, the <laughs> value of no. But before we get into that, I'd love to give our listeners just a little understanding of you know who our guests are and what brought them into our field because it's such a fashion-driven field. So what brought your interest into serving children who think differently or experience life differently? Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of a funny story. I, I came to Vanderbilt. I came to Vanderbilt sight unseen. I'm from Michigan, had never been here, didn't come before I showed up uh, as a Russian poli sci major because I wanted to be in the CIA. <clears throat> and I'll come back to that. It's relevant. Um, I still can't believe my parents let me do that. Uh, but after a couple of years and a couple of things happened, I, in my sophomore year, took a linguistics class, which was really interesting to me. And my grandmother had a stroke. And through that, I was introduced to the world of speech pathology, which I had never really been exposed to before. And so I switched my major and ended up graduating from Vanderbilt with a degree in hearing and speech science and went on to graduate school there. And through that, even though I had gone in thinking I wanted to work with adult stroke victims, I was placed um, in an autism classroom and working with autistic children. And I loved it. And I think one of the things I, I taught in the graduate school for a long time, and I, I talked to the SLP students to say, this isn't necessarily for everyone. Like, if you want to go in and just kind of sit back and do some flashcards to work on R, this is not for you. Like, this is every day you're coming in, trying to help children figure out what interests them. I'm in the minute, you know, just moment by moment decision making. So, you know, that CIA piece of like detective work I, I bring into uh, working with young children with autism and their families and helping their families hopefully have that same. I mean, the families know everything, but that detective work to really uh, kind of unravel it all. So um, I've basically been working with autistic children and their families ever since. I have worked in uh, schools with middle schoolers. I've also worked with adults for a short period of time right out of school. So, um, but it's always been autism. And uh, so you're talking to a fellow political science convert. So I, I were <laughs> actually lived in Mali in West Africa. And I went through the same experience of really seeing the value of communication when you were talking about linguistics and just really mm -hmm. understanding what somebody's trying to tell you without being able to understand every word they're saying. It it does have ties to being able to communicate with children, especially children who identify as autistic. It's being able to see yeah. the full picture becomes that much more important. Um, one of the things that I think that we as a field have always focused on is 
building repertoire, building repertoire, making sure that we're increasing number of words, which has value. But the one thing we've neglected is being able to give somebody the ability to pull away their assent from something, mm -hmm. being able to say no. Why is the word no so important? Well, I would reframe that a little bit to say that the word no itself is not the thing that's important, right? It's the ability to safely and effectively communicate that message, right? In a way that's understandable to as many different people as possible. So, you know, when we think about being self-determined, having self-advocacy, keeping ourselves safe, being able to let other people know what we want and what we don't want, a safe, understandable way to communicate that is just in, it's just an enormous skill. And I think that we spend a lot of time when you look at goals, both for behavior analysts and speech language pathologists, a lot of times on goals for children to make choices. Well, a choice is no. Like you said, a sense and removing a sense. I mean, there there is a choice to be had there. So I just think it's it's a really, really crucial skill that we need to start working on from a very early age. And what, what are the ramifications? Is it, say I don't establish this for a child, or it's that I'll put my own family in this, is that my daughters never really learn to be able to, to say no to somebody who's asking them to take on additional tasks or um, in relationships with a power struggle or anything like that. I was reading um, just the other day a, a blog, uh, I think it was called Musings of an Aspie, and they were going through, you know, how the inability or the discomfort of saying no has led to so many different ramifications in their lives. What are some of the things that you would be telling a family, you know, if I don't teach your child to be able to remove assent appropriately or even inappropriately, like, I mean, that's mm -hmm. something we have to talk about too, but to be able to tell somebody this isn't okay with me or I'm not wanting to do this, what are what what's the long term effect that you might be explaining to a family as they're debating this? Yeah. Well, it comes up and I'm sure we'll talk about it more. Long term, when we think about what it means to trust someone, to be in a relationship with someone, to be safe, to really to be happy, you would have to learn what your own boundaries are, first of all. Be you know, try and figure yourself out with that. And again, ideally do that in a safe and understandable way. Right. So that's what we're working toward when we're working with children, because all the children are showing us at some level or adults the things that they don't want to do. Right. I mean, it's, it's everyone is doing this. It's just how they're doing it. And then the other side of it is then how we're responding. And so a lot of times I'll talk with parents about this idea of really showing their children <clears throat> that their communication and acknowledge it. They can honor it. They can respond to it. Um, if they can't honor a no, we have some strategies for us to be happy and in relationships and working in the community or involved in groups. They have to be able to say no for their own mental health, right? And for their ability to trust other people, that they don't have to say yes to everything someone else wants them to do. And that that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, you're you're trying to teach somebody how to be able to advocate for themselves and to create a world that they want to be a part of versus having to conform to this is the world I'm giving you now follow. Um, 
So how do we start this process? Every child probably has a way of that they're saying no almost right off the bat. I mean, it could be a physical refusal. It could be screaming at you. It could be nodding their head. Uh, How do we start teaching these unique communication styles so that the family can reinforce it the way that you're talking about? Well, I think there's a couple things. One is what you mentioned. We need to start to figure out how is this child communicating when they don't like things now? And I promise you, every child's doing it, right? They're, like you said, maybe they're turning away. Maybe they're using words. Maybe they're using physical or emotional behaviors. But every child is communicating. If we're a detective, right, and we look carefully, we can probably figure it out. Um, <clears throat> so we want to figure out how they're doing it. I also want to think a little bit about what they're actually trying to say. Right, so no can, can mean flat out no for sure, um, but it can also mean like I don't want to right now, or I don't want to do that with you, or I can do that but I need a minute, or I just need a break, or I need you to go away for a second. I mean, it can mean so many things, and the reason that's important is that the next step of kind of teaching, we want to make sure we're matching up the massive. So if they're saying no, never, <laughs> right, that's different than if they're saying. I need a minute or hold on or wait. And so when we go in and try and practice this with them, we want to make sure that both our verbal and I'll talk a little bit about visual or augmentative and alternative communication messages match up with that. So we have those two pieces in place, right? Like, oh, okay, I will give you a break. I will back off for a minute. Or no, we don't have to do that right now. You know, I was going to work on coloring today to work on animals. And, And he's like, giving that back to me. That's not what I want to do. That's up to me as the adult to be creative and flexible and find another way to work on that skill today and honor that communication, reinforce that communication. So there's a lot of steps to it, but I think also if we don't get in there and start working at this at early ages, these are the messages that eventually lead to significant safe behaviors. And we'll see that as kids get older, if they don't have an effective, safe way that's honored at least as much as possible, then we start to see these really challenging behaviors. And, you know, back to your original question about what we tell families, I mean, those are the types of behaviors that really limit your ability to be in relationships and and trusting and working with other people. But let's let's tackle some of these, um, I guess, underlying meanings of no, and maybe put it into the context of you know, with what the child is trying to communicate, talking through some of the techniques that you might do it. Um, and maybe we'll stick away from the the no, uh, almost like the reflexive no of the anxiety of, of having a routine broken where it's like, without even thinking, my no is coming out. But let's start, let's start instead with maybe a preference no, something where it's like, no, that's not what I want because I enjoy what I'm doing right now. So how would you start working with a toddler to start maybe honoring that, but also is that sometimes you do have to get to different opportunities and how would you work through that? I'll share a story a little bit later at some point of a slightly older child, a three to four year old, we work through something, but toddlers, when they come in, when we're doing things with children, again, we look at it like this ascent piece. I'm finally, I'm glad we're finally starting to talk about ascent for young children or for individuals who don't have adequate communication. How can they ascent? And for the toddlers that we see, right, they can ascent by approaching us and joining in 
and they can remove a scent by walking away or turning away and those types of things. And so early on, what we'll do is that's what we're looking for. Most of the time with our young children, they're communicating this physically. So they're getting up, they're walking away, they're handing us something back, maybe they're crying. Um, and so we, you know, we just start there with our modeling, basically, right? And so really, in, in that, when I think about the trusting relationship that we need to have, once children realize, like, we're not going to, you know, when you turn and walk away from the pizza game that I have out or the ball run that I have out, I'm not going to pull you by the arm and make you sit down and do this thing, right? Like we're taking that as a learning opportunity to learn about the child and also model the, no, okay, I don't want to. And what we've really found is that once children trust that and they feel supported in their environment, even at a very early age, they become more um, amenable to maybe tolerating some adversity. Like, hey, let's just hit the ball one more time or let's put two more pieces in the puzzle because they trust that if they really don't want to, they're gonna say no and we're gonna go, oh, no problem, right? And so it's that just trusting relationship that then I think allows you to push, push children's wrong word, but lead them maybe to some more opportunities that they might not have had otherwise. But if the response to them is always, you're gonna do it whether you like it or not, eventually they don't like anything and they really lose so many learning opportunities because you've lost their engagement. Yeah, I mean, that's so, so I don't valid. Know if that makes sense, but that's, you know, yeah. No, it, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And I, I think this is where the, the CIA detective work comes into play, <laughs> is that you can't put the onus completely on a child or a toddler who hasn't necessarily had the opportunity to be able to see the value of, you know, delayed gratification or the value of negotiating or the ability to to kind of say, no, that's not for me right now, maybe later. Right. And to see that pay off as an adult, we have experienced this. And it's almost like a time for us to learn from the child. How is it that they're learning? What is it that they care about? And maybe I need to approach them differently in this moment as those skills aren't quite there. What is it in I'm going to go back and, and kind of date my learning in this process. So 20, 25 years ago is that as a clinician, I had to be flat and affect. Mm -hmm. I couldn't respond to the emotion of the child. What is it that they're teaching right now for that child that you were just describing who maybe is crying and very sad because this is an emotional response? What are, they, what are we teaching our clinicians now that might be different from what I learned? Well, I think a couple things. I mean, in that example, at least how we are coaching our folks and when we talk to people around the state, a lot of focus on um, engagement, right? Which engagement is different. To have engagement, the child has to be, you know, you've heard happy, relaxed, and engaged, right? They have to be in that place. And for kids, young children to get in that place, especially children who have maybe delayed verbal language skills, they're really responding to all our other cues. So our tone of voice, our facial expression, our voice volume, our body language, all those types of things. So really trying to get folks to be as natural as possible in there. Um, and then the idea, especially again, we work with really young children, but we're helping clinicians 
co-regulate with the child. And so what I mean by that is that they're not, they're neither flat, like I'm going to ignore you or not worry about it, but they also don't get really worked up, right? They don't go above the child. They are over there comforting the child. And again, usually when children become dysregulated like that, honestly, so much of the time it's because they're uncomfortable and they don't know what's going on or they don't want to do something. So coming over and helping them, like, I, I hear you, I understand what's going on. This is really hard. And this comes up a lot when it's, you know, a situation where maybe it's not a choice. So maybe it's a young child who really hates having their diaper changed, right? And they can say no, even if they could say it, they can give a picture, they could say it nicely, but eventually the diaper has to be changed and the child may be upset. And so we would coach a caregiver or if it was an RBT to first of all, you know, give as much warning as possible, use some visual supports, maybe a timer, and then really just try and support the child through the process rather than, like you said, either being flat or being frustrated or angry, of course, but really working through it and acknowledging the child's emotional response to that um, is what we typically would, would, would coach at this point. Yeah, and even in that example that you gave of the child needing to have their diaper changed, is that typically they're going from an environment where it is probably more enriched to one where you're laying there, you're in a position where you now are going to have discomfort because your parent is going to be wiping you and cleaning you. Mm -hmm. And this isn't where I want to be right now as a child. Um, and, and you see that even in school-aged kids, not the diaper situation, but they're coming from recess to academics and things like that. So what are some of the processes that a family can kind of pre-plan for? If you're talking about some of those techniques of, you know, I know this is going to be a challenge for my child. Right. How do I set them up for success here rather than into a, a battle where it's like my control versus your control, who's going to win? Right, right. Yeah, I think, and I'll talk to parents and teachers a lot about this act. Actually, so for situations, you know, for a one-off situation, you are likely not going to have all the things you need in place. But for things that are happening repeatedly, so the child's always upset getting their diaper changed. They're always upset coming in from recess, whatever it might be. Those are the situations where we can use some visual supports. So I refer to visual supports as anything visual that we're using to communicate to the child and augmentative or alternative communication as supports the child is using to communicate to us. So when I think about visual supports, and it could include a timer, it could include a first then board, a little mini schedule. So I think the best we can do when we know something's gonna be hard for the child is let them know it's coming. Sometimes we'll allow a no in there, if you will, like that's where the no might be. Can I have one more minute? Like, no, I don't wanna go inside right now. Can I have one more minute? And then we'll try and honor that. And then we know we have to go in. But a lot of times for children, just having that power that's honored and respected and they have a little time helps. Um, and then something else we'll do, right, is really thinking, again, the detective theme in this is hilarious to me, but working with parents, like, what is it that might help your child calm down? So just recently, we had a little guy, and what we realized what was happening is that in addition to him not liking having his diaper changed, when they were changing his diaper, they were making him put down his two trucks, which he loved. And so we're like, what do you think about letting him just hold those trucks while you're changing his diaper? And they were like, 
hey, that's fine. It was just our habit, like time to change your diaper, put your trucks down, here we go. So taking a moment and really, especially when there's an ongoing challenge, it's worth the time to kind of problem solve it. Or like a student with recess, you know, maybe there's a student who loves the planetary systems, right? As an example, maybe their board has some of that on and maybe the first thing they do when they come back in can have, have something to do with that. Something to just meet them halfway. Like, I know this was hard for you, so let me throw you a bone. Yeah, and make this a little, a little easier and more comforting. I mean, do you do you feel like when you're talking to families and and when you communicate with educators, that at times we don't often know that we've walked into some of these battles and it's it's hold on, I didn't even think that that truck even yeah. mattered right now. I just was trying to make it so there was nothing that could interfere with getting the job done. Um, I mean, is yeah. that is that part of the concept of what you're teaching is just to be more aware of everything that's contributing? Yeah, I, I think also with the families we work with, and I think this can happen in schools, I think this can happen in clinics. There's, I, can't, I wish I had it somewhere, but there's like this far side cartoon that we use a lot. And it's got this like big eyeball looking into someone's room and the woman's on the phone going, Gladys, can you come see what's going on? Because I can't see it you know, that idea of having someone else. And so I do encourage parents or teachers or speech pathologists, if there's something that keeps happening and you're like, all right, I'm ready to, you know, I can make this a more successful interaction. Have come, else, come and look. In the diaper changing example, when the parent was describing that situation to us, they didn't think to include that detail. And so we said, well, let's, let's just, can we, you know, can we watch one time? Can we watch what goes down? And the uh, clinician who was watching saw it immediately. He was like, I think I have an idea that the parent just didn't even, it was so ingrained, they didn't even think to share it. So having someone else observe can be hugely helpful to kind of figuring out some of these aha moments. Sometimes when it's, especially if it's a routine, it can be really hard. And, and when you're the person doing it day after day, it's just hard to, to step back and be like, could there be something I'm missing? No, absolutely. And, and, and it probably is the biggest difference between being reactive in intervention versus proactive and preempting some of the behaviors and instead allowing somebody to successfully use the skill, which in this situation might be, no, not now. Um, can I have my truck? I mean, whatever it may be, right. there's, there's something that would allow for the flow of the day to continue on in most of these situations, if you give the voice back. Um, I do wanna, you had hit on the fact that there's so many different no's that are out there. And I don't think that all the time that we take a step back to realize that somebody's saying no for a variety of reasons. Do you take the time as you're going through and teaching and, and do you ask others, whether it's parents, educators, clinicians, to take the time to say, you know, we have to teach each of these no's separately to be able to say, you know, it's not that, that somebody can just say no, they have to be able to say no in a variety of ways to have a full. We do that. And, and the thing is, it, it takes a while, right? This is not usually like a just come in and like, just got it kind of situation. Um, we can teach that kind of cause effect pretty quickly. Like if we were gonna be like, oh, just give me the toy back. But in terms of really clearer messages, and that's where using some type of a visual support can be helpful as we might have a, a card or a voice output device that has the four different messages on it. And then we're really working on discriminating, like 
what is it right now? Is it I need a break? No, I don't want that. Um, so it really, it's just really important. I mean, we the story I was going to mention, we had a child who was, had just turned four and he was in a church-based preschool here in Nashville and um, was doing great, had some support there. He was just starting to use single words, but mostly used single pictures exchange to ask for what he wanted at the time. And they were having this challenge. Uh, he would be kind of playing, during, uh, I guess, maybe center time or downtime. And other children would come over to him and he would push them down. And he was a little bigger than the other children. And so people started to be concerned, like, is this the right placement for him? And so we spent a little time looking at this. And to, to your point of what was the message, his message was really, it, it was still the intent is no, but basically he was trying to say like, move please, or I need my space, right? And so that's how we programmed that whole thing with, with that specific message. And he learned with modeling to say, move, eventually move, please. Mom really wanted it to have to be not just this move, you know, to have some politeness marker on it. Um, but he did learn to do that again through ABA. I mean, you, you look at the antecedent behavior consequence, you get those in place. That skill was learned pretty quickly in, in that situation. Absolutely. And, and, and it also gives the chance to when there is a safety issue is that this child has not been told no to everything. They have not been taken away all their ability to ascend throughout every single task through their entire life. So that when you do have to create a safety situation and you have to let that child know that your no has value right now because they could be hurting themselves by running into the street or something to that extent, is that you haven't devalued the the cross traffic of communication there are there times where you're where you're telling families that you know you have to also be able to withdraw that no and sometimes there's the harsh reality that the child might be potentially harmed if you don't at this moment and how do you get back to teaching about it later we really want to build that up um so, because sometimes we look at it and it gets back to like, why are we saying no to things? And a lot of times it is compliant. I said this, you need to do it, which makes us be more careful with our own speech, I think. Um, other times it's because we're not being creative or flexible about what could be done. Um, but again, when you get back to that level of trust, like the little boy I was just talking about, so he did learn to say move please to these children in the classroom. And you can again, think about how complex this had to be because then we had to teach the children in the classroom when he says move please and is not touching you they were basically told to run to the teacher and get a lollipop like just go we had to reinforce them but then it comes back to but the whole goal of having this child in this classroom is to have opportunities for engagement and learning with his peers once he we had established that he could do this new skill successfully of saying no move please students got with it that's when we came back in and started to build up some tolerance for adversity if you will right and so there were just we had some visuals of how many times he was allowed to say move please and then we had a little timer for how long the children would come play with him and so this needed a lot of adult support on the front end no doubt and it took a couple months to get this from beginning to end 
but it was life altering because this child got to stay in that classroom and have those opportunities. So I think it's worth the investment um, of time resources um, for children to be able to learn this. And then, like I said, once you get there, we're not saying we want to, this is, I think, a fear sometimes of parents and educators, right? Is like, you're just turning this child into a monster, like where they can say no to everything and say no, kind of like what you were saying earlier, we, we're going to circle back. We're going to circle back and build in some tolerance for adversity and, and move through things. So. No, absolutely. And, and the fact that when you were talking about the school situations, and I don't know that I always appreciate this as much, and that's something that I need to always kind of take a step back and see the value to others at all times, is that even as adults, we have at times hard, it, it's not a skill that we've all developed to accept somebody else's no. We might try and guilt them into a yes. We might try and get them to feel pity on us, to be able to kind of change their mind. Uh, even peer pressure, it's subtle at times. And I think that if we're teaching assent for our own children, and at the same time, a byproduct of that is we're teaching others to respond when somebody is removing assent, is that there's not a single person in that process who doesn't benefit. And that's the inclusive part about all this teaching. These aren't skills just for autistic children. These are skills that we all need to develop over time. It's just the, the gradient of where we're at with those skills might change. Um, do you, when you're working with families on this, is this a skill of teaching the family how to respond, teaching siblings how to respond, that the families walk away feeling like, wow, I didn't realize that I even, that I was doing that. And I actually do that to my other kids, or I do that to my spouse, or I mean, do they catch themselves? <laughs> They do. Like we have parents report a lot of different things. I will say we have a number of parents and, and all are already, you know, I think there's been a sh shift in parenting over the years as well. I mean, my children are grown and I'm glad because I don't, I yikes, you know, but, but I think they've become and they're more responsive and they are more empathetic. And we see a lot of parents who come in and actually go ahead and co-regulate with their autistic or not. Um, but we do have a number of families who come in and it's very eye-opening to them. But over time they see it and they see the relationship they develop with their child and they see their child's engagement and trust and joy and just comfort. Um, and, you know, I think that it's, it is empowering and we do have them sometimes say, you know, we do have families say a lot, both for this and other things. This has helped me a lot with my other children. No, and, and just even thinking through everything that you've been describing so far, the training to be able to do this and to help others to develop these skills, it's immense. I mean, you're talking about empathy training. You're talking about sympathy training, your communication training, social skills training. There's a lot that goes into all this. Where, where do families even contact these resources? You I mean, you're doing a wonderful research project on this that not everybody has the access to. Where do you suggest that they start looking? So it's, it is, I would agree with you that it is really, really tricky there. Um, I will say that Triad, I'm part of Triad at Vanderbilt, which is the Treatment Research Institute for Autism Spectrum Disorders, has really nice free online trainings for families and educators for that matter, um, neurodiversity, and, and there's an incredible library of like really smart little tools. And so 
we have our families use those, but I also share those with families and providers and educators around the state and country all the time. Um, not that that's the only resource out there, but they within those brief online trainings, they also give you links to other resources. Um, so for families who aren't coming in contact with folks um, in person who have those skills. Um, but I do think the field in general, it, I think through conversation, there's more and more providers out there that families can come across who are experiencing and training and learning and unlearning um, to be better providers than maybe they were in the past. Um, so I'm hopeful that, that the resources grow more and more for families, but there is that online resource if it's helpful. And I can send you all the link to put in the details from the podcast. That would be wonderful. And as, as a clinician, I would say is that the day that I think I become a, not a great clinician anymore is the day I think I know it all. And we have to be able to adjust. We have to evaluate. We have to look at and, and see, you know, how are other people feeling our treatment? And are there modifications that we can make over time to make it better, stronger, and more collaborative in nature? So I, I appreciate the fact that that you point that out through the process. Um, what, what would you I mean, I, I want to give you kind of the opportunity to have a, a little bit of a platform just to give some tips to families and clinicians out there who are trying to understand this and want to make it a part of their practice. Where should they start? I mean, what's the what's your guidance on getting your foot in the door? So my guidance is that you have to practice. So I see goals related to communicating no, manding no, protesting, all those types of things. I, almost every treatment plan has those. And almost every IEP has those. But you know what? No one practices them. It just doesn't feel the same as practicing, like, what color crayon do you want? Or what do you want, the academic subject do you want to learn next? Um, and so what happens is that when people try and practice it is in the moment that the child is escalating. So my biggest tip to people is somehow find a way to remind yourself every day, every session, every few times every session to work on this with a child. And this is where we'll collaborate with caregivers a lot too, is that if we're gonna work on teaching a child to, to communicate no in some way, we don't wanna start by approaching them with the thing they're the most scared of and hate, right? We wanna start with something more neutral. Like that maybe they're just not really liking. And we go, oh, I don't want that. And we put it away or we put our hand out and they give it back. And you just really have to practice at times the child is fairly isolated um, and make sure that you actually reinforce what's happening. Because the other thing I'll see sometimes people will practice, and it, it, this happens more when a child does it spontaneously. Like maybe they'll be working on something with the child and the child will give this beautiful like, hand the object back, they don't want it anymore. And the person interacting with them will be like, oh, hey, let's just try it one more time. And I'm like, no, this child's that skill's not developed for that child yet. You need to honor and respect that right now. That means no, thank you. I don't want it. Back away. Um, so I think that, I, I just think the practicing piece at a time that the child's regulated is just huge. Absolutely. And and I think that as I've watched, and I think we both experienced this change in the field over the years, is that moving away from compliance-based programming and treating the assent not as maladaptive behavior of somebody withdrawing assent, but as a skill set, probably will shift that paradigm 
probably will result in more opportunities, more trials, <laughs> being able to yeah. practice it, because now we think of it as a skill and not a maladaptive behavior. But it, it takes us to get to that point, right? Yes. No, that is a huge point. I think sometimes folks feel like, oh, well, the child is removed sent they've left and, and they don't capitalize on that learning opportunity and that's exactly what it is it's a great learning opportunity and so you can use it and then it's up to us you know and the young kids I mean they're they're jumping around all the time so you just have to be on your toes and find the thing that the child is willing to assent into the activity and then be ready for when they remove that ascent because with young children it will be pretty fast <laughs> absolutely and, and Lisa thank you so much for coming on today it's I think it is these conversations that start to kind of tip the scale of you know where treatment could still improve and where we could yeah. all get better at things um and I'm gonna say is that I always feel like I learn from these conversations, but this is another one. It just gets you thinking again and again, what could I be doing differently? So thank you for coming on today and sharing your experience. Yeah, of course, I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. 